Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Ecclesiastes 4. We'll not necessarily be preaching a message this morning um, on Palm Sunday. Next week, of course, we will focus in on Resurrection Sunday. Although what we have to say today uh, is not just very relevant to um, what's going on in the world right now, but definitely relevant um, to Resurrection Sunday next week, as was last week's message on death. Ecclesiastes 4, verses 1 through 3, God is in control, the problem of oppression. So recall that we've been walking through um, the problems with the theory, with the contention that God is in control. And uh, Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 15, Solomon says, to everything there's a season, there's a time to every work, that God has made all things beautiful in his time, that God is in control, that he's sovereign. But there are some things that might threaten that in our minds. The first one is we talked about being corruption, the corruption of justice, the corruption of the church. How can God be in control if his ordained institutions are wicked and corrupt? Last week we talked about death. Well, uh, uh, excuse me. Um, um, yes, we talked about death two weeks ago. Excuse me. And uh, as we talked about death, we considered the reality that man must die. And an understanding that we are different than beasts. I guess it was last week. I took a little bit of a break this week and my, my mind uh, uh, loses a little bit of its context. It was just last week that we talked about death. Um, and we talked about the fact that man is more important than the beast, right? That there's a difference between us, that we're special to God, even in the midst of death. Yes, we must die, but when we die, we don't stop existing we go on to live with Christ or to suffer the second death. In Ecclesiastes 4, we're going to consider four more contentions, four more problems, four more things that would um, threaten or challenge the claim that God is in control. And this morning, the one that we are going to talk about is the problem of oppression. As we look at the world around us, this country, this state, the communities surrounding us, there are so many suffering people. This past week, we heard accounts of Syria and the chemical attacks, people dying, children being killed by chemical warfare. This morning we talked already about bombings on Palm Sunday in churches in persecuted countries. And when you speak to people about God, one of the most common and really most basic replies that you hear is the problem of oppression. How can an all-powerful God allow people to suffer so much? Can God really be both good and in control when there's so much oppression? This is what Solomon contends with this morning. So we begin in verse 1 of Ecclesiastes 4, and the Bible says this, So I returned and considered all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of such as were oppressed, and they had no comforter. And on the side of their oppressors there was power, but they had no comforter. Solomon says he returns. That word literally meaning to turn back. 
Last week he was thinking about death. He was thinking about the resurrection. He was thinking about the difference between beast and man. And now it says that he turns his heart back to these thoughts. He turns his heart back to talking to himself. He turns himself, his heart back to further considerations. Remember at the end of chapter 3 as he was talking about death, he recollects this major difference between man and beast. So he concludes that death is still under God's control, but can suffering really be under God's control? That word oppression is a word from which we, we bring, draw out the idea of extortion. It speaks of those who would take advantage of the helpless, take advantage of the innocent. And take note again that Solomon is talking about under the sun. He's talking about what happens in this life. He's talking about what happens all around us. We don't necessarily always think about oppression, and that for many reasons. Uh, to some degree, in our community, we are, we are incubated from much of the oppression by others. We're incubated from much of the oppression of others by the general wealth of our country. We're incubated from much of the oppression of others by uh, our choices of whom to interact with, to interact with people that make right choices, by a government that is generally stable, by a society that is generally stable. These things tend to incubate us from the realities of oppression, but you really don't need to go far to find the oppressed, do you? They're still all around us. You don't need to go far to find children who have been neglected and abused. You don't need to go far to find men and women who have been duped by get-rich-quick schemes or the empty promises of drugs and alcohol. You don't need to go far to find a young girl who has been deceived and abused by some man who promised love but instead left her with only pain and regret. You don't need to go far to find any of these things. They are all around us. You don't need to go far to find oppression. And as we talked about this week in particular, uh, it's all over the news. Syria is a long ways away. Egypt is a long ways away. But they are being, there is oppression there. Parents having to see their children, having to bury their children. How do we reconcile a good God, a God that's in control with these sorts of things? We don't want to think about these things. We don't like to think about these things. But at some point, we come face to face with oppression. And in that moment, we must reconcile what we see before us with our understanding of God. Solomon says that he beheld the tears of those that were oppressed. And he says, I didn't just see their tears, but I saw that in the midst of their tears, they had no comforter. And this troubled Solomon greatly. It troubled Solomon greatly that he saw the tears of suffering, that the people who were suffering had no comforter, and it seemed as though all the power was with the oppressors. On the side of the oppressors was all the power. On the side of the oppressed was no power. And this is the plight of every generation, is it not? Regardless of whichever time you study in the history books, open your history books. Regardless of whatever society or civilization you might study, there has always been a group of powerful men who have sought to prey upon the weak, the needy, the innocent, or the ignorant. It's always been this way. There have always been powerful men, evil men, who have preyed upon the innocent and the weak. Not only is this concept not unusual, but it is not unusual for good people in whose power it might be to change things to do very little. Not always because they don't care, 
Sometimes because they don't know what to do, sometimes because they don't know how to do it, sometimes because they're afraid to do it, sometimes because they just have nothing that they can do. And these thoughts led Solomon to a conclusion, which we read in verses 2 and 3. Remember, he's already talked about death. Now he says, Wherefore I praised the dead which are already dead, more than the living which are yet alive. Yea, better is he than both they which have not yet been, who hath not seen the evil work that is done under the sun. Solomon's conclusion in the midst of his considerations, as he looks around at the suffering and the evil, and the fact that the, the tears of the oppressed are not just present, but there's no one to comfort them. There's no one to avenge them. There's no one to get on their side. There's no one to overpower the, those that overpower. And as he sees the corruption and the evil and the wickedness of the oppressor and the fact that all the power rests with them, he says, and so I determined that it was better to be dead than alive. Those that are already dead are in a better place than those who are yet alive. And not only that, he says, but the man who is already dead is also better than the man who has not yet been born. Because the man who's already dead has ceased to have to see the oppression that is done under the sun. His reasoning is pretty straightforward. The dead man must no longer think about the oppression of the weak. The dead man no longer needs to look into the eyes and see the tears of those who are suffering. The living man, if he does not harden his heart to such suffering, deals with this all the time. And those who are yet to be born are going to deal with it in their generation. Before we go on to some thoughts on this, I'd really like to take a moment and contemplate Solomon's heart in this. He's really torn up over this. So much so that he praised the dead, right? The suffering of the oppressed weighed heavily upon his heart. His perspective as he thinks of these things is incorrect, and we know this because he's considering under the sun, but his heart is in the right place. He is recounting his thoughts regarding the oppression of the people that are around him. But he's in his season of rebellion, remember, when he's having these thoughts. In his season of rebellion, he's still troubled by the needs of others, even though he's pursuing his own flesh and his own lusts and his own desires. And in that time, he struggles because he sees the oppressed without help. And as we use this to understand that, as it relates to the thoughts of sorrow and sympathy over oppression, it's not only the godly who feel this, is it? It's not only the godly who feel the weight of oppression and who are anguished over the oppressed. In fact, as a whole, humanity is uniquely touched, even apart from God, by people being oppressed, by the tears of the oppressed. And tuck that concept away. Tuck the concept away that Solomon is contemplating these thoughts while he is in his time of rebellion. Tuck the concept away that it is a human thing to be touched by this. Because what we're going to do in the rest of our time today our exposition was only these three verses. What we're going to do in the rest of our time today is we're going to talk about the difference between how the unbeliever approaches the problem of oppression and the believer approaches the problem of oppression. How the unbeliever approaches his perspective on the oppressed and how the believer sees or his perspective on the oppressed. 
And through this, I hope we can gain a new layer to a biblical worldview. So that as we see what's happening in Syria, as we see what happened this morning in Egypt, as we consider the people all around us, as you minister to those who, who are around us who are in need, as you see the people who are poor, who don't have what they need to, to, to continue to take care of themselves and their family, as you consider the tears of those who are oppressed by more powerful people, how should we respond? Not just to them, but how should we respond to God? So the first thing I'd like us to understand this morning, the first thing I would like for us to think about is that oppression is a human failing sourced in sin and godlessness. Oppression is a human failing sourced in sin and godlessness. In verse 3, Solomon called oppression an evil work. Now we've said this many times and it stands needed to be repeated very often. That sin and evil were not brought into creation by God. Nor were they brought into creation even by Satan. Satan was the first created being, it would seem from the record, to fall into a state of sin. We know that. But Satan had no dominion when he fell to sin. His sin affected no one but him. And then a contingency of the angels, quite possibly a full third of the created angels, followed him in his rebellion, but they each exercised their will. Satan had no dominion, and so when he fell, he alone fell. This is not the case with mankind, however, is it? Last week we considered Genesis 1.26, which says this, And God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So last week we used this to talk about the fact that because man has dominion over the beast, he is higher than the beast. Because man is made in the image of God, man has natural human dignity, right? This is why we can't just murder someone because they have natural human dignity. That's why it's wrong. That's why it's morally abhorrent to God. This is why we, can't, we, we dare not abuse people. We dare not um, uh, um, offend their, them personally, offend their person because they are made in the image of God and to do so is to blaspheme God. But we also see in this verse the reality that man has been given dominion, and not just over the beasts and over the animals, but over all of the earth. That man had a dominion. And because man had a dominion, he was given responsibility. He was also given accountability. Uh, quite typically, the decisions of leaders affect those under them, right? Now, we all know this. This, this, this is uh, kind of life 101. The decisions that leaders make affect those that are under them. Fathers, if you haven't learned yet that your decisions affect your family, you really need to take a step back. And you need to learn that. That the decisions you make are not just you. It is your family. And your family, by God's design, will prosper or suffer on the basis of your decision making. Because you're a leader. God has given you that leadership. The decisions of parents affect children. The decisions of employers affect employees. The decisions of politicians affect citizens. The decisions of pastors affect the church. This is the nature of authority. When God has given a person responsibility, he has also given them accountability. And when a man has a leadership role, his decisions affect the lives of others. 
So man was given dominion. He was given authority over all creation. When Adam rebels against God and so he falls to sin, it does not just send him into a state of sinfulness, but it sends him and his wife and all of the created order falls into a state of corruption through his rebellion. It was not only Adam that was cursed. It was not only Adam and Eve that were cursed, but all of creation, the whole of the created order fell under the curse, not because of Satan, but because of Adam. And so we read in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. So death passed upon the whole of the human race because of man, uh, Adam's rebellion. Pastor, that's not fair. I didn't make that decision. And now I'm suffering from the decision that Adam made. Well, in a manner of speaking, yes. In a manner of speaking, no. In a manner of speaking, yes. Original sin is not explicitly your fault or my fault. But first off, we need to remember that Adam was our greatest representative. He lived with an uncorrupted mind. He lived outside of a sin nature. He lived in a perfect environment, and yet he chose to rebel. And for you to think you'd have done anything else in that situation is quite arrogant and unfounded. But even apart from that, it really doesn't matter, does it? Bad things happen to people all the time because of the choices of others, don't they? We just spoke of this fact and we considered the concept of dominion. But this happens all the time. It isn't a child's fault that his parents are neglecting him or abusing him. The child will suffer the consequences, but he didn't do anything to deserve that. And yet, that's the life under which we live. The reality of it is that someone else's choices have harmed him. It isn't an employee's fault when a company goes belly up, goes bankrupt, but it's the reality in which they live. They're going to be affected by it. And they need to confront that reality. Likewise, it isn't your fault that the human race is born in sin. But it is the reality in which we live. That Adam chose for the human race this condition. And now we live in it. And it's for us to confront that reality. And so it is we understand that mankind brought sin into the world, brought death into the world, eternal separation from God. It came as a result of sin. And one of those sins, one of those evils that was introduced by the fall of mankind into a sinful state and so into all creation is the evil of oppression. Consider first, under, as a subpoint under this, oppression of the innocent is blasphemy against God. Well, and, and where we're going with this is an understanding that oppression is not of God. That this is not something that God likes. This is not something that God wants. This is something that is a, a natural fruit of our rebellion. Leviticus 19 Verses 13 and 14, the Bible says, Thou shalt not defraud thy neighbor, neither rob him. The wages of him that is hired 
shalt not abide with thee all night until the morning. Thou shalt not curse the deaf, nor put a stumbling block before the blind, but shalt fear thy God, I am the Lord. In the law, we read God's warning against oppressing a neighbor or oppressing the innocent and the weak. That whenever you read Old Testament law, take careful note of the times that God finishes a phrase with, I am the Lord, or I am the Lord thy God. What God is doing when he finishes a phrase, when he uh, ends a, a, a uh, commandment with that, is he is doing what we call in logic an appeal to authority. Now, from a human standpoint, we call an appeal to authority a logical fallacy. Uh, when a person attempts to prove that they are right by citing someone outside a field of expertise. So two children are playing in a playground, and one says to another, did you know that the moon is made of cheese? And the other children says, nah. -uh. And the child says, yeah, huh? My big brother says so. And the other child says, oh. Well, these two children, seeing that the brother is bigger, and so obviously smarter, both trust something that they estimate to be higher. And so they believe that the moon is now made of cheese because of a wrong appeal to authority. So we can get ourselves into trouble from a human standpoint when we try to appeal to authority. But from a divine standpoint, we can do that, right? Because God is never wrong. Because God is perfect. So when God makes a command, and then he says at the end of the command, I am the Lord, what he's saying is, you need to do this, and you need to do this because I said so. And in most cases, we might say, well, that's not enough. But in God's case, we say that's more than enough. Because God is God. By this same token, God regularly gives a command. And as an answer to that man or woman who might be thinking, why should I obey you? God says, because I created you. I'm the Lord. I'm the Lord, your God. We consider also Proverbs 14, 31. The Bible says, he that oppresseth the poor reproacheth his maker. But he that honoreth him hath mercy on the poor. You see a very clear link here between oppression and blasphemy. To oppress a man is to blaspheme God. To refuse wages to a man that has earned it with his labor. To take advantage of the poor man is to blaspheme God. So we see, first of all, that oppression of the innocent is blasphemy against God. Second, uh, as these subpoints go, Oppression of the innocent is also rebellion against God. In Isaiah 59, 12 to 14, we read this. For our transgressions are multiplied before thee. Our sins testify against us. Our transgressions are with us. And as for our iniquities, we know them. In transgressing and lying against the Lord and departing away from our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart words of falsehood and judgment is turned away backward and justice standeth afar off for truth is fallen in the streets and equity cannot enter. In this list of sins which Isaiah is conf uh, confessing unto the Lord for his people we find grave offenses of rebellion, lying unto the Lord through false worship, departing from the law of God and oppression are all manners of rebellion against God. So oppression is a human failing. It's sourced in sin and godlessness. It is blasphemy against God, and it is rebellion against God. All of this intended to show to us that God does not want oppression. Oppression is not God's 
fault. And we have to start there. When you see children that are suffering and dying over in Syria, and you hear somebody say, how could God let this happen? You need to remember that God is not the author of this, that man's sin is the author of this. And so then the natural question, of course, is why does God allow it? If God is in the heavens and he hates evil, he hates evil, and he hates oppression, and his blasphemy against him and his rebellion against him, well, then why do we have people full of tears being oppressed by those who are so much more powerful than they are? How do we reconcile the two? And we've asked this question before and we need to do it again. I hope you can answer the question in your mind before I answer it out loud at this point. If not, then you need to get to the point where you can. How can you answer somebody when they say, how do you reconcile God not wanting evil with the, the presence of evil? How do you reconcile God loving man and desiring what's best for man with the reality of evil? Well, we reconcile it by understanding that God hates evil, but he allows evil so that he might give mercy, right? We talked about this a couple of weeks ago, that God allows corruption, God allows evil, because through the allowance of evil, man is allowed to live. By not judging us yet, God has granted us mercy through which we can receive grace. If God did not give us long-suffering, if he judged us immediately, then there would be no hope of salvation for us. But because he allows sin to exist and mankind to continue, he's allowing us to come to Christ. He's giving us time. And so though we have to live in a sin-sick world, the reality of the sin-sick world that is around us is in fact God allowing sin to play out in this time so that the message of salvation can be heard and received by all who will receive it. So we go back to Romans 5 and we read this. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. But not as the offense, so also is the free gift. And here, here's where we get into it. This is where the mercy comes in. If, me, if God was going to just obliterate evil, then he would have to obliterate man because man's heart is evil. God can't take the evil out of the world without taking you out of the world. May I put it that way? Well, why can't God just get rid of all the ruthless dictators? Well, because there would be a new ruthless dictator that would step up in its place. Why can't God just get rid of all the murderers? Because a new murderer would step up in its place. Because in your heart is the same capacity to sin as anyone else, as any evil person. Your heart has the same capacity. If God were going to remove the world of evil, you would be at the top of the list. And so God has chosen to not remove evil from the world so that you would have a chance to accept Christ 
and be redeemed from that sin. That's why evil exists. That's why God's allowing it. So what does he say here? For if through the offense of one many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man Jesus Christ hath abounded unto many. This week is, is Palm Sunday. This coming week we'll be talking, uh, looking at, at Good Friday. And then uh, as we um, consider Resurrection Sunday, we're going to be contemplating the crucifixion of our Lord and His glorious resurrection. Jesus did that to undo oppression. The gift of Christ on the cross is God's plan to undo the suffering of man. And so you look all around and you say, why is there such oppression? Well, the oppression is there, the suffering is there because of God's patience. But that doesn't mean he's standing idly by. In fact, he paid the ultimate price to undo it when he sent his son Jesus Christ to bear that oppression, the pain and the shame and the wounds, to be hung upon that cross, to shed his own blood, to bear the sins of many. Continuing, and not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift. For the judgment was by one to condemnation, but the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. For if by one man's offense, that's Adam, death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as by the offense of one, Judgment came upon all men to condemnation. Here it is. Even so, by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. The righteousness of one. Adam throws the whole race into sin. Christ makes provision for the whole human race to be redeemed. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one many shall, uh, shall many be made righteous. Why is there suffering? Why is there oppression? It's there through the mercy of God to give us time to believe. Paul would describe it this way in Romans chapter 11 verse 32 as he spoke about Israel. For God hath concluded them all in unbelief that he might have mercy upon all. Sin is directly opposed to God and to the will of God. But once men fell to sin, God had a choice. Do we just destroy everything and start over? Or do I go out of my way to undo what man has gotten himself into? And God loved us so much that he chose to let sin continue. Though it's abhorrent, though every day it grieves him, though he has to look down and he hears the cries of the oppressed. The Bible says that the cries, the blood of the innocent cry out to him. He sees the poor. He sees the oppressed. He sees the needy. And it grieves his heart. And yet, he bears it so that he might have mercy upon us all. God allows a sinful world, world to exist to give you and I the chance to exercise our will and return to him. God operates in mercy today so that in the time of mercy, you and I might be saved. Why is there oppression? 
How can a loving and sovereign God allow the innocent to suffer? Because he allows sinful man to have a free will. And with that free will, most men will oppress and rebel. But without that free will, no man could exercise love unto God unto salvation. You're a recipient of that if you've accepted Christ as your Savior. The reason why God has allowed it to continue is so that you could be saved. So that you could be called out of your rebellion and into his light. So that you could live forever with him. He did it for you. And this leads us to our second point. Never, ever, ever forget that oppression touches the heart of God and it should touch the heart of the godly as well. James writes in his epistle a thought that's both profound and important. James 1.27, he says, Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. James says, pure religion, the very purest and highest form of external and material exercise intended to direct our hearts unto God is to care for the innocent, the weak, and the needy. As Moses describes the character of God in Deuteronomy, he said to Israel, the Lord your God is the God of gods, the Lord of lords, a great God, a mighty and a terrible, which regardeth not persons, nor taketh reward. He doth execute the judgment of the fatherless and widow. He loveth the stranger in giving him food and raiment. As God rebuked the nation of Israel for their hypocrisy in Isaiah 1, he commanded them to repent with these words in Isaiah 1, 16 and 17. Wash you. Make you clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before mine eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do well. Seek judgment. Relieve the oppressed. Judge the fatherless. Plead for the widow. Do you want to please God? It doesn't come from feast days or holidays or animal sacrifices. That's not pure religion. Those things are religious exercises, but that's not pure religion. It's not what really pleases God. It doesn't come from filling a chair in the church. That's not what really pleases God. It comes from purity of life. A determined to make God's priorities, determination, excuse me, to make God's priorities your priorities. And what are God's priorities? Seek judgment. Relieve the oppressed. Judge the fatherless. Plead for the widow. Take care of the innocent and the needy. The command extends to the prophet Zechariah as well. Zechariah 7.10, Oppress not the widow, he says, nor the fatherless, the stranger, nor the poor, and let none of you imagine evil against his brother in your heart. God warns us in Proverbs 21.13, Whoso stoppeth his ears at the cry of the poor, he also shall cry himself, but shall not be heard. Continuing, uh, through all of those verses, we see the theme that God cares for the innocent, the weak, and the needy in society. We could literally spend an entire message going from passage to passage, from law through the prophets to the New Testament, discovering how often God commands his people to protect, to care for, and to avenge those who cannot do it themselves. In the same way that oppression is godlessness, the care for the innocent and the helpless in society is godliness. 
So let us never forget that oppression does touch the heart of God and it ought to touch your heart as well. And the reason why this is so important, at least as I've experienced it in my own life, is because as we become more of an entitlement society, it's getting more difficult to, to distinguish between the oppressed by circumstances or the oppressed by choice, right? It's getting more difficult to determine who is a victim and who is being a victim. And I don't have any strategies for you to parse that out. We've all probably come up with some. But may I just tell you this? Don't allow your aversion to being taken advantage of by someone who's not actually suffering, who's not actually oppressed. Don't allow that to harden your heart to the poor. And this is a temptation, isn't it? To allow your heart to be hardened to the needs of people because of how many people take advantage of that. They take advantage of your soft heart, your love for others, your desire to help. And then you realize, I just gave something to that person and they've wasted it. They took advantage of me. You know, that's going to happen. But far be it from us, far be it for us, to refuse to help those who are in need because we're afraid of being taken advantage of. You know, God can handle that. God can take care of you if you are genuinely giving to someone who you genu genuinely believe has a need. God can take care of how they deal with that, how they use that money. That's God's business. Don't allow your aversion to being taken advantage of to mean an aversion to helping those who you believe are truly in need. God's heart. People take advantage of God's mercy all the time, don't they? Every day, the majority of the world is taking advantage of God and his mercy. God gives it anyway. If God will give mercy to those who he knows will take advantage of it, can we not have mercy as well? Don't allow your heart to be hardened to the needs of others. Even far, far better to be taken advantage of than to harden your heart. Because see, God can still reward you even if you're taking advantage of. God can still reward you for that. But if you harden your heart to the poor, then you are now resisting God who has told you, commanded us not to do so. Oppression touches the heart of God. It should touch the heart of the godly as well. Third point. The oppressed can be helped by man, but oppression can only be abolished by God. The fact that God calls us to relieve the needs of the needy, to help the helpless, to defend the defenseless, gives us hope and understanding that there is much that we can do to help the oppressed. But there's a big difference between helping the oppressed and abolishing the oppressors. I mentioned already, if you take away the oppressor, another oppressor will rise in its place. Man makes laws to punish oppressors, but soon enough, in any culture and society, the lawmakers become the oppressors, right? And the point is this, until the day that God abolishes oppression, there will always be oppression. 
Now, that doesn't mean we allow it. That doesn't mean we ignore it. But we do need to understand what we're dealing with here. We need to understand this because we are living in a society that is deeply divided on this idea. There is an entire portion of society, makes up a large portion of society, that believes errantly that oppression can actually be abolished by man. They believe a utopian society is possible. Call it whatever you want. It's been called by many names over the years. It's been called Leninism, then Marxism, then communism, then socialism, political correctness, social justice, identity politics. It's all headed in the same direction, which is mankind has the capacity to overcome his faults and to create a utopia. The idea of these movements is that there is an oppressed class of victims that need to be defended, and we defend them by oppressing those who are oppressing them. And by this oppression of the oppressors, we force them either to stop treating others the way we don't want them to, or to, to just be silent. And the point is that eventually society will cease to have anyone who is oppressed. Now that sounds pretty good, but to the man or woman with his eyes of discernment locked onto these movements, they are at their core evil, godless, and do more to hurt the innocent than to help the innocent. And they do this by mischaracterizing oppression. And this is what we just talked about. The fact that we are in a society of oppressed people now, right? Everyone is oppressed except for, if you read the news, the straight white male. He's the only one that's not oppressed in society and everyone else is oppressed. So in our society, we have victims that are now being broken up by the color of their skin, even though it's an entirely synthetic measurement, right? The color of your skin is nothing more than the color of your skin doesn't change the fact that we're all made of one blood. And yet we're dividing people up as oppressed and not oppressed by the color of their skin or by gender. So there's women in the oppressed class and men, the patriarchy, in the non-oppressed class. And so the sexual deviants are now an oppressed class of people, the sodomites and transgender and such. They are the oppressed in society. But the problem is when everybody that is doing something that somebody doesn't like is now oppressed, society loses focus on the truly oppressed, right? There was a great women's march where they were marching for rights that they already have and ideals that have, were, were established decades ago. But when's the last time you saw a march for the destitute and the poor? Or for the murder? Well, we, we, we see a great march every year for the murder of the unborn. We thank the Lord for that. But for the murder of these kids in places around the world. When was the last time you saw a million-person march for the fatherless and widows? When was the last time the truly innocent and oppressed were the focus of society's utmost sympathy and care? And so the oppressed become everybody, and now we lose sight on the truly oppressed, because everyone's oppressed. Everyone's a victim. And the people that suffer the most are the true victims, the truly oppressed. So these movements mislabel the oppressed and the innocent, and in doing so, they marginalize the oppressed and innocent. 
But as long as sin exists, take note, as long as sin exists, oppression will exist. And this is because sin and oppression go hand in hand. Because in your heart is the capacity to oppress. And were it not for the grace of God that redeemed us, that changed our hearts, that sin would reign over us as it does over others. Godlessness and oppression, they go hand in hand. Society cannot weed out oppression through oppression or through education or through wealth distribution. In fact, customarily, it is the wealthy and educated who are most likely to be the oppressors, is it not? James warned of this in James 2, 5 through 7. Hearken, my beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom which he hath promised to them that love him? But ye have despised the poor. Do not rich men oppress you and draw you before the judgment seats? Do not they blaspheme that worthy name by the which ye are called? It is not often that powerful and intellectual and influential in society are anything other than oppressors over the church of God. Now, I'm not saying that a wealthy man, an intelligent man, cannot be a believer. We know the Bible's not saying that. But what they're saying is the tendency toward power is also the tendency toward corruption and oppression. So it is that it's not our calling as a society or even as a church to abolish oppression from off the face of the earth. That's not our calling. We could just as soon abolish death as we could abolish oppression. Our calling is to relieve the oppressed in the name of God until God comes and relieves the earth of oppression through judgment. And this leads us to point four. Oppression will be abolished at Christ's sure return. Make note and, and let this give you hope. Psalm 103.6, the Lord executeth righteousness and judgment for all that are oppressed. Psalm 146.5-9, happy is he that hath the God of Jacob for his help, whose hope is in the Lord his God, which made heaven and earth and the sea and all that therein is, which keepeth truth forever, which executeth judgment for the oppressed, which giveth food for the hungry. The Lord looseth the prisoners. The Lord openeth the eyes of the blind. The Lord raiseth them that are bowed down. The Lord loveth the righteous. The Lord preserveth the strangers. He relieveth the fatherless and widow, but the way of the wicked he turneth upside down. God is the divine advocate for the oppressed. That's God's job, not your job. It's God's job to abolish oppression and he will one day at his sure return. Malachi 3.5 And I will come near to you to judgment and I will be swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers and against false swearers and against those that oppress the hireling in his wages, the widow and the fatherless and that turn aside the stranger from his right the fear and fear not me saith the Lord of hosts. There's coming a day when God will avenge the fatherless, avenge the widow, avenge the innocent in society. And he will abolish the oppressor. So James says in James 5, verses 1 through 8, Go to now, ye rich men. Weep and howl for your miseries that shall come upon you. Your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver is cankered and the rust of them shall be witness against you and shall eat your flesh as it were fire. Ye have heaped treasure together for the last days. Behold, the hire of the laborers who have reaped down your fields, which is of you kept back by fraud, crieth. And the cries of them which have reaped are entered into the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. 
Ye have lived in pleasure on this earth and have been wanton. Ye have nourished your hearts as in the day of slaughter. Ye have condemned and killed the just, and he doth not resist you. Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth, and hath long patience for it until he receive the early and latter rain. Be also patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. There's coming a day when God will avenge. There's coming a day when all wrongs will be made right. There's coming a day when the oppressor will be abolished. At the Lord's sure return. So Jeremiah 49, 11 says, Leave thy fatherless children. I will preserve them alive and let thy widows trust in me. God will right every wrong and on that day the innocent, the weak, and the needy will find the greatest of advocates and oppressors will cease. We long for that day. We look for that day. We know that day is coming. Until that day, we reflect the heart of God and we help those who are in need. One final point. Man can find lasting satisfaction. How do we reconcile all that we have learned about the oppressed and about suffering and the sorrow and the tears and the powerlessness of the oppressed with lasting satisfaction? Can I truly find lasting satisfaction in a world that is so evil, in a world of corruption, in a world of death, in a world of oppression? Evil abounds. For every home of comfort and rest and happiness, there's a home where a child must live in a fantasy world to avoid reality, where a wife must cry herself to sleep every night, where a widow wonders how the bills will be paid. How do we find lasting satisfaction in a world of oppression? Well, we certainly aren't going to find it in the world, in its programs in its efforts. We find it in the reality that God is in control. That God knows that God is the advocate for the poor and the needy. And we find our lasting satisfaction in playing our part to be the hands of God to help those who are in need. And that's what we consider as we close today. I give you a verse to help you every week carry with you the truth of lasting satisfaction resting in God alone. And the verse this week is Acts 20.35. I have showed you all things, how that so laboring ye ought to support the weak and to remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. How do we find lasting satisfaction in a world of suffering? You're not going to be able to abolish suffering. But can you do something to help? Can you extend the love of God to those in need? To the innocent in our society? Can you give as God has called you to give? Knowing that it's more blessed to give than to receive. And in it, we can find lasting satisfaction. Assume the mind of God. Help the oppressed, the weak, the innocent, the needy. And you will find 
that in doing so you will have aligned yourself with the very nature of God's design in you and you'll find a happiness that you could not find through receiving as you choose to give. Let's pray together.